All right. So first, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name's Neil Reifenbark. I'm uh, an ER doctor living out in North Carolina. I trained at Los Angeles County Hospital with you, Jan. You were my program director back then. That is true. The reason I'm on here today, I'm a, I'm a recovering fentanyl addict, and it didn't start like that. As you can tell, this is not going to be your usual MRAP segment, but it is something that is absolutely relevant to each and every one of us. This is a story of addiction with one of our own. There's a chance there are a lot of people listening who are either in the same position as Neil or know someone who is. So we're hoping this will be helpful for those of you out there who know someone, know a friend perhaps. Addiction really snuck up on me insidiously. I have a long family history of it, so I was always sort of afraid of drinking, afraid of using drugs growing up. But, you know, college came around and med school came around and I drank socially with my friends and I thought that I had everything under control. There became a a point in residency where you learn about all the warning signs of addiction and I recognized that I was doing them without recognizing it was a problem. It, It was like this cognitive dissonance in my head where I was drinking most days, I was drinking to excess, passing out often, I was drinking alone. I married to a very smart woman. I started hiding alcohol without without really consciously doing it. Just, uh, you know, I didn't want to hear about it. Drinking definitely began to interfere with studying. I never drank and went to work, but, you know, when you're drinking that often, it it absolutely affects your cognitive function. And so I I think I noticed that it was affecting my performance at work, but I uh, didn't care. I had this belief that I was a physician and alcoholism is something that happens to other people and I wasn't going into a withdrawal. So I just built this barrier in my head that it couldn't be a problem. It later developed into a problem as I graduated residency and as I took my first job after residency and, you know, my wife put her foot down and there was to be no more drinking, which did not last very long. So it got to be more hiding, more binging. I would occasionally get caught and the kind of the cycle just continued. Eventually, we moved to North Carolina. Part of the reason was I was trying to escape old haunts and uh, escape cost of living in Los Angeles. It didn't work, you know, the addiction followed, it was part of me, it followed right along. And so I, you know, quickly began binging and hiding and binging and hiding. And then one day I was working a whole string of night shifts and I saw an intubated patient with a fentanyl infusion and I thought, wow, my wife couldn't breathalyze me for that. That just goes to show how crazy the thought process is. (laughs) I thought fentanyl would be a safer alternative to alcohol, you know. (laughs) I did it just compulsively. I, I took fentanyl, couldn't wait to get home, used it, loved it immediately and stopped really drinking at that point and just realized this is, you know, this is what I've been looking for. And I was up to almost, I was using around 17 or 1800 micrograms of fentanyl in a day, which is just astronomical to think about. Not all at once, but over the course of an hour or two. Yeah, I think it's worth just mentioning. So what addiction physically is, is a hijacking of the mesolimbic reward pathway in your brain. And the reward pathway exists for survival. And so you get a feeling of reward when you eat food, 
drink water, have sex, rear your children. And through a variety of mechanisms, your drug of choice gets inserted into that hierarchy. You know, we wonder why do people who are addicted to drugs, why are they so desperate and they'll do these crazy, crazy things? It's because your drug of choice becomes as important to your brain as water. What would you do if you were dying and did not have access to water? That is what the addicted brain is doing. So, Neil, as you were going through this, did you reach out to anyone? Did you see, like, a therapist, perhaps? I, like I think a lot of doctors, did not take my own mental health seriously. And in hindsight, I've had a long history of depression and multiple major depressive episodes throughout my life. I did not want to see a psychiatrist. I did not want to see a therapist. I had seen a therapist at one point, and we wasted a lot of money because I I remember sitting in her office with my arms crossed and not really wanting to talk and burning the hour. And it was just something that I was not attuned to and not willing to accept. Depression and burnout felt like failure. And I was not a failure. I was hardworking. I I was going to push my way through whatever needed to be pushed through. I mean, it sounds so ignorant now, especially considering everything I've gone through and everything I've learned. But yeah, that's, that's absolutely how I felt. I, I, I was also really afraid. I was afraid of my friends finding out. I was certainly afraid. You know, I love you, Jan, but I was afraid of you finding out. I was afraid of the medical board finding out. You know, I, I did not know who to go to for help, and I, I did not know how to get help. I don't think that anyone can listen to this and and not think that at some point you must have been suicidal. Were you suicidal at some point? Yeah. Um, so, in the in the depths of my addiction, I stole a bottle of rock uranium and I hid it in the back of my closet with a syringe and a needle. And I, I would hold on to that rock uranium, and it it felt like a parachute, you know, uh, that just in case and. Um, I didn't know about PHP. I didn't know that there were other doctors who were addicts. I didn't know how to get out of this. And the last thing I did before I went to rehab is I called my life insurance company to confirm that they would pay out with suicide, just in case, just in case this all didn't work. If I didn't have children, I I don't know what I would have done. I I really may have killed myself if I didn't have kids, but I just... um, you know, I had another one on the way, and my, my other son was three or four at the time, and I just um, loved him too much. It just couldn't, couldn't get there. Oh, my gosh, Neil. I just, my heart breaks just thinking about it, but I'm so, I'm just so glad to be talking to you about it because I think it's amazing. Yeah, me too. So, Neil, one thing I've been thinking about is how did you ultimately get caught? What happened? You know, you, you can't steal fentanyl every week and do that forever. So eventually a nurse suspected something. My medical director confronted me. I denied it initially and then eventually confessed and self-reported to the physician's health program in North Carolina. And that's worth talking about physician health programs because fortunately 47 states have PHPs. California, Nebraska, and Wisconsin don't. So coming from California, I didn't know they existed. What a PHP does is they require you to abstain from drugs and alcohol and mind-altering substances. They require you to be random drug and alcohol tested and typically require you to 
participate in a number of abstinence-based self-help meetings. I know for my PHP, that does not have to be AA or NA. I've gotten very involved in Recovery Dharma, which is a Buddhist-based recovery. There's Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian-based one. There's Smart Recovery. It's, it's not all 12 steps. And PHP recommended I go to inpatient rehab, which I did. I ended up having my medical license suspended. I actually was arrested for felony embezzlement of a narcotic. Fortunately, I had a very understanding DA who did not want to ruin my career. And as long as I complied with the PHP, did some community service, they dismissed my charges. And as of last month, have my medical license back. So it's been almost 18 months now for me. How did you cope with being arrested? Those moments of confessing to your medical director, being arrested, and without being able to use, what, how did you cope with it? It was difficult. Particularly at first, you know, when I was confessing to my medical director, I was starting to withdraw. By the time I found out that I was going to be arrested, my wife was laboring and we were in L&D and I got an email from my attorney that I was going to be arrested. So that, again, not a, not a wonderful experience. I was very fortunate. The investigator from the North Carolina Bureau of Investigation was very kind to me and very understanding. I remember crying during the interview, you know, feeling a lot of regret for violating the Hippocratic Oath and, you know, what has become of me. And he actually was reassuring me, saying, I see this all the time. You're going to get back to work. Don't, don't worry about it. When they arrested me, he actually gave me the courtesy of not handcuffing me. He allowed me to turn myself in. The whole process was about two hours. I turned myself in, got uh, fingerprinted, and um, they set the bail at zero and, and let me go. So. After I had a, a period of sobriety, I, I came before the medical board in North Carolina, and I, I think it was like a half hour or 45 minute interview, and they were extraordinarily fair with me. Uh, you know, their job is to make sure that patients are safe, but they also want physicians who are healthy to be working in their state. And so they mostly wanted to know that I had a stable recovery, and they wanted to know about that process. They didn't ask much about what had happened in the past. They wanted to know that I wasn't a liar. You know, anyone, I guess, could look good on paper. And they wanted to know that I've bought into recovery. So um, it, it was not easy. Um, it was just the next step forward. For people who've never been to rehab, mm -hmm. uh, what is what is rehab? How, I mean, like, what is your day like at rehab? What do they mm -hmm. do in rehab? So I went to rehab when my wife was six months pregnant, which I can't recommend. Um, <laughs> I cannot <laughs> recommend. Not a, good not, not a thumbs yeah. up on that. <laughs> yeah, not a, not a good experience. So mine was um, a partial hospitalization program, which I think is pretty typical. So it was, it was like going to high school, kind of. It was You'd show up for eight to five and live in sober living, which let me tell you, living on a... Um, twin bed with someone else in the room, you know, four people in a two-bedroom apartment was was eye-opening. Show up in the morning and we would do meditation every morning. And then there would be a variety of classes throughout the day. So there'd be a lecture. Every single day we had group therapy. You would often meet with your individual therapist. You would meet with your physician at least once a week. The rehab that I went to specialized in physicians and professionals. I was surrounded by pilots and lawyers and physicians, amongst other things. But 
Again, addiction is so common among physicians that there are physician specialty rehab centers all over the country. It, it is not at all uncommon. What you learn from other people is that you're not alone. That was the biggest thing is, you know, I thought I was the worst person in the world. And um, I found out that I was just another average physician dope fiend. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> there, like there were so many more people just like me. It was the biggest sense of community I had felt, I don't know, since medical school, since college. You know, there's a saying that the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's what I felt. What are your thoughts about the the culture that we have in medicine and how it impacted you and your course as well as everybody else? I think the culture of medicine is is dangerous. The idea of modern residency was started by uh, Dr. William Halstead, who, as it turns out, was a cocaine addict, you know, and so everyone wondered how this surgeon was able to stay up days on end and have endless energy while well, it was cocaine and, and morphine. Yeah. He was never able to get down below 300 milligrams of morphine a day, you know. <laughs> wow. So, so the whole premise of, of residency programs is, is a challenge. I remember in my fourth year of residency, I had a one-year-old and I had to go into work. My wife was working. She worked a night shift and my childcare fell through. I had nobody who could watch my son. And it was the only time in residency I called in sick. I, I could not come into work. And the person who was on backup call berated me, just absolutely berated me. We had a text message group with our residency. There was a lot of screaming. They tried to find a sitter that I'd never met for my son. And it was just, I felt a lot of guilt for that. And I, I think that was, you know, it's pretty normal to say, if you're not in the hospital, you're not sick enough to miss work, right? And I'm very guilty of that. I was chief resident and I said that to the incoming interns. I'm grateful for the duty hour restrictions that we have now. Our residency had 17 residents a year. You told me that they're up to 20 a year now. Yeah. Thankfully, to decrease the number of hours. I don't have an answer for it except to say that culture of always show up, you know, always work, no excuses, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it almost killed me. And it, it does kill people. You know, you, you, you have to be responsible and you have to train, but there's a limit. And, you know, fortunately, this discussion is, is ongoing and things are changing. But, yeah, I, I think that culture is um, dangerous. I'm going to ask you a difficult question because I mm -hmm. think we all struggle with this question about if we suspect that someone that we're working with might have an addiction problem for whatever reason, we all don't have a great answer sometimes as to how we would deal with it. Would we talk to the person directly? Do we talk to the medical director? Having been through what you've been through, what would be your advice to someone who thinks that somebody they care about in their group, their friend, their colleague might have a problem? What should they do? It's a difficult situation. And had someone confronted me, I would not have taken it well. There's a lot of denial and rationalization that comes with active addiction and uh, a lot of anger. The other important thing is patients have to come first. When someone's in active addiction, they are not giving the best patient care that they possibly can. You know, whether they're using at work or just can't wait to get off of work so they can have another drink or use, you know, they could be withdrawing at work. Certainly, I know I altered patient care decisions subconsciously. I'm sure I did in order to get out of work or get access to drugs. 
And that's not a safe situation. So, you know, we all took a Hippocratic Oath. And part of that is confronting someone that you think has a problem. Uh, You're not just there to take care of your patients. You're there to take care of everyone's patients. You may lose friendships. You know, the person that you confront or come to will very likely not take it well. But that's not nearly as important as doing the right thing. I'll say the, the nurse who reported me, I had a tremendous resentment towards that nurse for a long time. I've subsequently apologized to him and am really grateful that he spotted me so I could get help before I died. There aren't a lot of long-lived fentanyl addicts. I, I firmly believe I'd be dead had I not been caught diverting when I did. But he and I did not have a good relationship for a while afterwards, and uh, I think that's pretty typical. You know, your, your whole world comes crashing down. What is your advice to someone struggling with similar thoughts? First of all, you're not alone. There are recovery meetings called Caduceus, which are super well attended, and they're all over the freaking place because there are so many alcoholic and addict physicians. It it is just extraordinarily common. I forget the exact statistics, but it's something like 7% of Americans have substance use disorder, and it's thought to be higher among physicians. I'm speaking up today because I know there are people listening to this who are hiding their addictions and who are slowly killing themselves, and there are people who will kill themselves. I wish I had heard someone talk about being an addicted physician when I were a resident. I wish I had heard this, and I wish I'd heard someone say, it's okay, it's not your fault, there's help, and there's hope. There's a way out, and you don't have to suffer. Shame is the biggest killer. I feel a lot of guilt about things that I have done. I do not have shame about being an addict anymore. What does life look like for you now going forward? It's funny because I'm still not back to work yet. And there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in my life. I am happier than I can remember being in many, many, many years. A a huge part of recovery is becoming comfortable with uncertainty. I thought I knew, you know, I, I went to college, I went to medical school, I went to the residency I wanted, I got the job I wanted, I, I knew what I was going to, you know, we had a kid when we wanted to have a kid, we were planning on having the second, and, and I knew everything I wanted, I had the car I wanted, this or that. It was a profound thing to me that when I bought a home, moved to a state I love, got the perfect job that I really loved, and things were really thriving, That's when I became addicted to fentanyl and blew my life up because what I thought I wanted was not what I wanted. There's a a wonderful book that I just read by an author, David Poses, called The Weight of Air, and it's his memoir about heroin addiction. And in it, he talks about that heroin is a painkiller, and it was really the medicine he was using to treat the pain of his life which I thought was a really profound thing. I, that's what I was looking for. You know, that drinking and opiates really stopped being fun a long time before they became a problem. And I was miserable inside, 
and using a painkiller to kill the pain of my existence. Now I'm just thrilled with being alive and I'm, I'm thrilled with the life that I have and uh, it's not going to be what I thought it was going to be, but that's okay and that's, you know, exciting, frankly, and um, I'm happy. I'm content. I want to help bring this out of the shadows and I would love it if people would reach out to me and we can talk. I, I set up an email address so people can specifically email me about this. Um, we can put it in the show notes, but it's it's my name, ReifenbarkMD at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd be thrilled if people reached out. For those of you who might be listening to this thinking, I'm like Neil, I might have a problem. I hope that you'll reach out whether it's to Neil, to a therapist, to a friend, anyone, get the help that you need. We're all here to support you. All of your training, everything that you do, it really matters. And you matter to all of us.